Have you all seen the We Can't Stop You from Becoming Your Parents ads on television? I love them. Uh, If you're not familiar, uh, there's a a good doctor. They call him Dr. Rick. And what he does is he says, I I help homeowners not become their parents. And so so the ad takes you from various scene to scene where he is uh, attempting to help these 20 or 30-somethings to stop becoming their parents. And, and you can see they're part of the way along there. Like uh, Some of them are sporting fanny packs or, or like a, a deep-cut sweater vest along with shorts. And, and so they're starting to look like that generation which came before them. You know, I'm never going to become my parents, but it's starting to happen, and they can't seem to stop it. And so one of the scenes features him in a session. He says, you know, do we really, he's asking the class, do we really need a sign that says, live, laugh, love? And they all, and you're just like, yes. And he goes, no, the answer is no. And he puts the sign into the trash, and they're all kind of like, oh. There's another one where he's, he's pointing to the, a diagram of a cell phone, and he's like, this is how you silence your phone. And they're all going, yes, oh, okay. There's another scene uh, where on a whiteboard is written the word quinoa, which is a hard one, I'll give you that. But, but they're all trying to pronounce it and just, just doing a brutal job, right? Quinoa, and he's going, no. Joaquin, nope. Then there's a final one where he says, all right, now we're going to open a PDF. And there are those groans, oh, this is an impossible task before us. And then comes that famous tagline, right? Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money. I think the ad works because it, It's quite brilliant and humorous. But but it's brilliant and humorous because of the truth that it contains. Almost everyone, whether they want to or not, becomes a lot like their parents. Parents have an outsized influence in our lives. Indeed, parents are people makers. It's from our parents that we learn the very basics of life. They raise us up from a young age and we cannot help but to take on some of their traits for better or for worse. And it is to parents that Paul turns our attention this morning as we come to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. The main idea is this. Parents, especially fathers, are responsible for the formation of their children. And the exhortation is quite simple. He's going to give us two things to do. He's going to give us a negative command, don't do this, and a positive command, do this. And we've tried to summarize it in our application this morning. Don't frustrate your children, form them. Don't discourage your children, disciple them. Outline is there before you. Let's pray, and we'll begin our time together this morning. Father, we come to you this morning in need of a cool drink of water from your word. Last week was long for some of us, full of busyness and and worry for others. Some had quite good weeks, but but all of us come together this morning to to worship you and to taste once more that, that water of life. We come to see Jesus. We pray that you would show him to us through this text, through our gathering here. We ask that he would be honored. Lord, this text addresses primarily parents, but but we pray that you would make its application to each one that is in this room. That we would, at a minimum, recognize that Earthly parents and earthly fathers are meant to teach us about our Heavenly Father who has adopted us into His family. God, we pray that You would not allow us to walk away with heavy burdens tied up on our shoulders, but that we would feel Your easy yoke and Your light burden. Pray that You would cause us to delight in our duties parents, as grandparents, as spiritual mothers and fathers, you would help us to commit to raising up a 
generation of children who are nurtured and discipled in the ways of your word. Lord, we ask for those of us who might be wearied by the task of parenting or others who have moved on to stages of parenting where our kids are grown and it feels like the task is too great for us. Pray that we would hear your words that you spoke to the prophet Elijah. Arise, eat and drink, for the journey is too great for you. And to recognize that Christ will sustain us in any and every task. That includes parenting well our children from the time when they are young to the time when they are grown. So Lord, we we ask for your grace and your mercy this morning. We thank you that uh, you love us. We pray that uh, you would strengthen us through this word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Again, we want to situate us, to situate ourselves in the book of Ephesians. We've said the first three chapters are doctrine. The second three are about devotion. And you know, by the time we're done, you're going to be able to remember this really well because we, we go over it every week. Just like some of you are able to recall uh, the, the little pattern in Acts. See, some of you now are going, oh no, I don't remember that. But remember, for a long time, we said the book of Acts, uh, Jesus goes up. Anybody else remember, right? The Spirit comes down and the church goes out and God brings people in. And so you're able to, when you turn to the book of Acts, recall that. And likewise, when you are coming to the book of Ephesians a few years from now, I hope that you're able to remember that Ephesians is about doctrine and devotion. It's about what God has done in us in choosing us before the foundation of the world to save us from our sins. It's about God taking dead sinners who were without hope, who were kind of walking zombies, following the course of this world, disciples of Satan. He he came to us rebel sinners, we who deserve nothing more than death and hell, and He made us alive in Christ Jesus. God came and by His Holy Spirit made us alive to Himself. That's the doctrine part. That's the good news. He's he's made you alive, brother Christian. He's made you alive to Himself, sister Christian. That is good news. And it's from this position of being made right with God that we live out obedience to God. That's the devotion part. So in the first part of Ephesians, we could say it this way, we are adopted into the family of God. We didn't adopt ourselves, He adopted us. And then the second part of Ephesians, we are learning to live up to the family name. Devotion. And so the book of Ephesians is kind of built around this word, this imperative to to walk. It's a Hebrew idiom for live. It speaks to how we live our lives and it's, it's sprinkled throughout. But one of the things we see that fundamentally changes is right in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2. It's we are walking according to the course of the world. And then, once we're on the devotion side, once God has raised us from the dead, we are learning to walk according to the family name. You know, Walk in the manner worthy that you've been called. Don't walk like the world. Be off with the old, on with the new. Walk in love as Christ has walked. Walk as children of the light, because you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And then the last time we see this imperative is in verse 15 of chapter 5, and Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so it's this idea of walking wisely in the world, which is draped over the back end of Ephesians. All the way to the end of the book, Paul is concerned with telling us about how to walk wisely in light of the evil days in which we live. He wants us to walk wisely, as we shall see, in light of the spiritual warfare which is swirling around us. And we might ask, Paul, how do we walk wisely? When he tells us right there, he gives us two injunctions, one in verse 17, this is how you walk wisely. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So we want to understand what God's will is. Primarily, we do that by studying His Word, through prayer, through studying His Word together as His church. We're going to walk wisely by knowing what His will is. And then in verse 18 of chapter 5, we can walk wisely by not being drunk with wine or controlled with any other substances, but being controlled with the Holy Spirit of God. And we might say, well, Paul, how do we know that we're being filled with the Spirit? 
Right? We know that the Spirit has an assuring work in our lives. He, he lets us know that we know You. He assures us of our relationship with You. But we recognize He does a maturing work in our lives. He helps us to become and practice what we've been declared in Christ. But how can we be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul says, here are some signs that you are being filled with the Spirit. Here are some ways you can pursue spiritfulness objectively. He says this is what you do. You, you sing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And you sing to the Lord, making melody in your heart. So he has this corporate context. So you, you, are, you are gathering together with other Christians, you are singing the truths of the Gospel to one another, and you are singing them to God in worship. It's another participle. We, you are giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, context is corporate. Together we are giving thanks to God for what He has done. And then you get to verse 21 of chapter 5 and he says this last participle, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so we are looking for ways to serve and love well one another. These, these are ways that we can pursue the fullness of the Spirit in our lives to the end of walking wisely. Well, now Paul, when we go into verse 22, wants to make clear how we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This submission to one another does not eliminate the authority structures that God has kind of written into normal life for people. And so he addresses what submission looks like in really three of the most common relationships we have as human beings. He's going to speak to marriage. He's going to speak to the relationship between parents and children. And then next week, we'll see the relationship between employees and employers. And so we, we saw already that he calls wives to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And he calls husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church as their own bodies. And now, as we saw last week, he called children to submit themselves to their parents, to obey their parents, honor their mother and father because it's right, because it's one of the Ten Commandments, it's been commanded, and because it comes with a great reward. And now we're seeing the flip side of that, which is Paul's address to parents. He has an instruction for those who are in authority over children, and specifically fathers. Look with me at verse 4 of chapter 6. Fathers... Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is a great responsibility to bring up children in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. And children are a great blessing. We need to underscore that first. The Bible from beginning to end presents children as an inheritance, as a reward, as a gift from God. Uh, remember what the psalmist writes in Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil. For the Lord gives sleep to His beloved. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. I love the, the picture of this psalm, the, the point of which we, we need to press, right? It's, it's that God's work is decisive in all human work. It's God's work which decides the success or failure of our work. But, but you kind of have this, this picture of, of a man working, you know, whether uh, watching on the wall or, or building a house, and he says, the Lord grants sleep to those he loves, and and so the, the, wife, the husband goes home to his wife to go to sleep, and wouldn't you know it, behold, children. And you have this neat kind of connection between him doing physical work and building an actual house, actual structure, and building his family. And the point of the psalm is that it's God's work which is decisive in both. 
And so we can kind of see Paul's logic even here in Ephesians, right? He's addressed uh, the meaning of marriage and the relationship of marriage. And he said, look, when a husband and his wife come together and they become one flesh, behold, children! So the logic makes a whole lot of sense to us. The reason I share Psalm 127 is not just to point out that children are a blessing from God, but it's also to say this, that God's work is decisive in our work, and that includes reproduction. There are many Christian parents who have been faithful, who love the Lord their God, and who do not have children. And I want you to know, if that's you, it's not because God is mad at you or because of anything you've done. The Lord loves you. And He is sovereign. God does not entrust everyone with the same blessings. Why does God withhold good things from some of His people? I don't know. I don't know, but I trust that He is good. And I want you to take confidence in the fact that God is always doing what is best for you. You can trust His love for you. You are His beloved. And He is in charge of opening and closing the womb. Life and death are in the hands of the Lord. And you can trust the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ which were pierced for you as they are at work in your life. Even if that work seems confusing or discouraging. Children are a blessing and God doesn't entrust everyone with the same blessing. Some of us have been entrusted with children. They are a blessing and they are a great responsibility. Every time I say great responsibility, I can't help but think of Uncle Ben and Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. If you haven't seen it, I mean, you're just a huge loser. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, But Uncle Ben, as he is dying, says to the the budding Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Words of wisdom. Likewise, with great blessing comes great responsibility. And you see here, Paul wants us to see that. There is a responsibility given to parents in childbearing and specifically to fathers. Did you notice he just addresses fathers there in verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He's addressing fathers specifically not to mitigate or to undermine the important and crucial role of a mother in a child's life, but to emphasize that it is the husband who is both head of his wife and head of his home, of his family. And so the responsibility for the bringing up of children is ultimately to be laid at the father's feet. It is the father who will stand before God and have to give an answer for how he stewarded those blessings which were entrusted to him. It is the Father who is ultimately going to be responsible for the formation of His children. Fathers, you have a unique role in the lives of your wives and children. The Bible calls you to be uniquely responsible for providing for them. Materially and spiritually. It is your responsibility at the end of the day to ensure that your family has food on the table, clothes on their backs, and a roof over their head. It is your responsibility to make sure that your family hears God's Word read, sung, preached, and prayed. No one else can do your job for you, fathers. Though some will try. The Department of Social Services cannot fill your shoes if you abdicate your role as a father. The school system cannot replace an absent father. Indeed, even the most dedicated single mother cannot fill the shoes 
of an abdicating father. Fathers are important. Abdication of this role, fathers, it will reverberate in the lives of your wives and your children. Just a quick word to single parents. God is faithful. He can use single fathers and single mothers to raise up godly children. So I want you to be encouraged in that. And I want you to make use of the resources God has given you in the church. Jesus has said, the one who follows me will will be given now in this life spiritual mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. And the church cannot fill the role of a father either, but we can help to mitigate and fill in some of the gaps. And so make use of the church. And church, all of you who are spiritual mothers and fathers and uh, maybe some of you style yourself spiritual grandfathers and grandmothers. I want you to uh, be engaged in the lives of uh, those single families among us. That said, fathers, you may not abdicate your role without great ramifications within your family. It is your responsibility to equip yourself to teach and to lead your family so that they might know the Lord Jesus. You are to shepherd them towards Christ. And we might ask, why do so many Christian men willing to get married, willing to have children, but unwilling to be engaged with their family? Sure, they're around at the house, but they're not engaged and certainly not on spiritual things. It's, it's mom who has to drag the kids to church every week. Dad's not much involved. Well, there's a few reasons that men abdicate on, on this particular thing. I think one is they haven't been well taught about what their role and responsibility in the home is. Another one is just laziness, love for other things. But I think really it boils down to one major factor. Fathers abdicate this role when they are tepid in their love for Christ. At bottom, the reason that fathers do not lead well their wives and their children spiritually is because they do not love the Lord Jesus with all their hearts, minds, souls, and strength. They're not amazed by grace. Fathers, you will not lead your family well to love Jesus if you do not love Jesus yourself. Ask yourself, am I amazed by the grace of God? Does the thought of King Jesus giving Himself over to the enemy to be slaughtered so that His people can go free and live, does that thrill me? Or am I yawning at it? Does the reality of the impossibility of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead cause your heart to skip a beat? Does it motivate your life? Does the love of Jesus motivate all that you do and all that you are? Because if it does not, your children and your wives will sniff that out. And your lukewarm faith, your lukewarm love for God, well, it'll evidence itself in your lukewarm approach to the spiritual lives of your wives and children. Friend, are you animated by a desire to worship God and love Him with all of your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength? You must be. You must love God Christ deeply if you are to lead your family well. So, men, potential fathers, I exhort you, I implore you, you must be dazzled by the Gospel. Enchanted by grace. Devoted to King Jesus. Be passionate about who God is. 
Your primary calling in life is to worship God. And if you are married, the second thing on your plate is to love your wife and your children and to teach them to love God. Love God. Once more, wives, I want to reiterate that the emphasizing of daddy's role here by Paul doesn't at all minimize mommy's role. We know that oftentimes uh, women are more boots on the ground than men in the home as it relates to child rearing. Uh, They find themselves most often on the front lines. Moms are invaluable. They are the, the heart of the home. And you too are intricately involved in the raising of your children. You and your husband are to work together in the bringing up of your children in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Ideally, the proverb, Proverb chapter 6, 20-23, is something that could be said of, of every home to every child. I think it brings out um, the fact that both mom and dad have a part to play. Look with me at Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's, seeking, your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Mothers and fathers, we want this to be the lives of our children, that they would be able to listen to and recall the teaching they have received from us and meditate on it their whole lives, knowing that what we have taught them is leading them towards God. The God they were created to know and worship. With great blessing comes great responsibility, parents. Steward well the blessing that you have been entrusted with. Teach your children to follow Jesus. We all know that parenting is difficult. (laughs) Even now, as uh, I've spoken thus far, many of us are going, Lord, who is sufficient for these things? This is very hard. And Paul recognizes that, and that's why he only gives us really two commands here. (laughs) He gives us two things, a positive command and a negative one. And we'll start with the negative one. He says, fathers, parents, do not provoke your children to anger. Does this mean that we can never make our children angry? No. No, it does not. It means that we ought not provoke them, you know, press their buttons, and tease them into a place where they are, are frustrated and discouraged. Colossians 3.21 helps us to to recognize this when Paul says, it's going to sound really familiar, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Don't want to discourage our children. We want to train them. Now, what are some ways, I thought, a good question, what are some ways that we might be tempted to provoke our children or those children in our lives? Here are a few that, that I came up with. First, uh, being harsh with them. And constantly yelling or speaking to children with, with angry tones. Harshness is almost never helpful. The second thing I think we can do as parents sometimes is have unclear standards. Right? The kids simply don't know what is expected of them in the home or outside of it. And so uh, discipline is, is erratic and inconsistent. They don't really know what the rules are, and this can be frustrating. And, you know, kids are subject to forget. Uh, I've found in, in uh, parenting my kids that typically they do way, way better if before we head out of the house or the van to go somewhere else, if we just take a heartbeat to say, all right, 
This is where we're going. This is who's going to be there. This is what is expected of you. We do much better when we take a moment to make clear what the standards are than if we just, you know, hey, we're in a hurry and we pile on into there. Unclear standards can provoke children to discouragement and frustration. Another one, smothering. This is overprotecting children and trying to control their behavior rather than shepherding their hearts and provoke them to anger. And I think lastly, um, parents that are not humble. And what I mean by that is, uh, I think it's important for our children to recognize that mommy and daddy need Jesus too. <laughs> that we will not parent them perfectly. And there are times where we ought to go to our children and say, hey, uh, daddy was wrong. Wrong to do this. I was wrong when I said this. Will, will you forgive me? I need Jesus too. I need to have my sins forgiven. I think if we don't do that, and we come off as arrogant and always right, even when we're wrong, it can provoke our children to anger. We want to, we want to make sure that we are not provoking our children. I think there are some things we can do to prevent provocation as well. Uh, one, uh, don't give our children too many rules. And these are all practical. These are not laws. These are just suggestions. Uh, don't give too many rules. So in our home, we have, <laughs> we have many rules, but we have three kind of guiding rules over top of all the other ones. Uh, and It's pretty simple. One, no lying. Two, no disobedience. It's a really broad one there. It's my favorite. And then three, uh, no disrespecting mommy. And I tell my kids, if you can keep these three rules, we're going to do really well. And any other rule that you break in our house, it's going to fall under one of these categories. But we want, to, we want to try to keep it simple so they know what the rules are and where they're disobeying. We want to be clear. I think a second way we can prevent provocation is to avoid disciplining children for being children. There's a difference between being childish and being rebellious. Thirdly, we want to recognize that each child is different. Has to be a little bit like a football coach there, right? Knowing uh, which kid is going to be um, more gentle at heart and which kid needs a little bit more hard coaching, who needs an arm around the shoulder and who might need a, a little push in the back. We recognize our kids are different. Four, we never want to correct or discipline our children in anger. Never want to be about winning an argument. We want to be about loving them towards Christ. And then lastly, we want to rebuke our children sparingly and praise them lavishly. Like what Vodi Bauckham says on this. He says, Rebuke means little without a pattern of kind, edifying words. It will signify little when I rebuke my child for his outright rebellion if I'm constantly rebuking him for every little thing that he does. We want to correct when correction is needed. And we want to look for opportunities to praise lavishly. Uh, this is kind of cheesy, and we picked it up from foster care training, but we always say we want to keep the praise rate in our house high. It means we, we want to catch our kids doing good things and let them know, hey, what you are doing is good. It's really good that you said, you know, yes, ma'am, right away and, and did what you were supposed to do. We want to encourage them. That's not too different than what we're called to do as a church. Right? We're, we're called to catch one another doing good and to encourage one another in that. So likewise, we want to encourage our children to praise them lavishly when it's called for, that we might prevent provocation. Fathers, do not provoke your children, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This command to bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord is not new, and we heard it already in our call to worship this morning as we read from the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Let me read it to you again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Friends, parents are the primary disciplers, the primary teachers of their children. You, uh, mom, dad, are responsible for teaching and forming your children. Home is where people are made. Our parents teach us from a very young age what God is like. It is from parents that children learn authority and responsibility. It is from parents that children learn the difference between right and wrong. It is from parents that children learn what it is to be loved and cherished. It is from parents that children know what it is to be safe and secure. Parents, especially when your kids are young, you are a temporary stand-in for God. You teach your children what God is like by the way that you interact with them. It is your responsibility to teach your children that the Lord their God is one. That He is holy. That He loves them. Our primary goal as parents is to shepherd our children to the Savior that they need. It is to show them that us and them, like every other human being who has ever lived, need to be made right with God. It's to teach them that, that we have sinned, that we've chosen to listen to our hearts instead of God's Word. That we are rebels. We've committed treason against the High King of the cosmos and we deserve to die. We need to teach them that God has provided for us a substitute. That indeed, God the Son Himself took on flesh and died in our place so that we might live. But we need to shepherd our children to the Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus, letting them know that, that He laid down His life so that they might live when they put their faith in Him. We need to teach our children that there is forgiveness of sin and freedom from death. Peace with God can be had. This is our primary goal as parents. It's to bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This word, bring up, uh, is actually straight out of the nursery. And we, we saw it in verse 29 in reference to a husband nourishing and cherishing his body. Honer comments, the word means to bring up from childhood, to rear up. In some cases, it was used to refer to a nursing child. Here in the New Testament, when it refers to fathers rearing children, it has this connotation of, of nurturing. That's what Paul is getting at here. We are to, to nurture those under our care. Like you might, you know, a garden. I'm not much of a gardener, but you know, I think it's important that you, know, you fence it off from animals so they don't get up in there and eat all your stuff. Probably got to make sure that it gets enough sunlight and that you water it so that, that growth can occur. And parents are to be a lot like gardeners. Cultivate our children. And give them all the resources they need to, to grow up into Christ-likeness. Recognizing all along that we can't actually give the growth. That it's only God who can produce the fruit of the crop. I think it's important to remember as parents is we can be faithful to teach our kids the Gospel, but God is the one who must do the miracle of conversion. Our goal is to simply shepherd them towards Christ and to pray that God might bring them to life. We also see here that Paul expects us to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Those are two kind of different ideas, uh, but but. The idea is a whole formation of the child. Training them to follow the Lord Jesus. 
by way of corrective discipline and formative discipline. Corrective discipline has it in the name, right? Uh, This is when someone is doing something wrong, uh, taking them by the ear and saying, this is wrong, and this other thing is right. I think sometimes parents shy away from corrective discipline because it's not fun. (laughs) But friends, if we are to love children well, we must do the difficult and uncomfortable work of disciplining them. This is one of the things our culture gets really, really wrong on a whole lot of things. The the thinking is, is that love must always affirm and approve of everything that someone does. But that is not what love is. Real, godly love is not the absence of disapproval. It is a commitment to help others follow Jesus. There is more to love than mere acceptance and affirmation. Indeed, God disciplines His children, and likewise, we are to discipline ours after that pattern. In Hebrews 12, verse 5, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as son? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is loving to correct your children. In the same way, church member, that it is loving for us to correct one another when we are caught in sin. It is hateful and unloving to see someone trapped in their sin and to say to them, that's just fine. You do you. It's all good. Because we know that the wages of sin is death. And that someone who persists in unrepentant, habitual sin, ignoring the Word of Christ, has set themselves on a course for hell. It is unloving to affirm them in that. So we want to call them back to Christ. We want to call them to Christ for the first time. Perhaps you're here and you're a non-Christian. I want you to know that your sins can be forgiven. That you were made to know God. I want to encourage you to turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ. Living life your way is a sure way to find yourself separated from God. Under an eternity of His wrath. That is His right response to the evil you've done. And I want to implore you Follow Jesus, who brings to you life everlasting, an eternity together with God and His people. Stop playing God in your own life and submit to the God who made you. Correction is loving. Children, those of you who get corrected from your parents, children, It would be really foolish of you, it would be foolish of any of us actually, to get mad when we're corrected, but it would be really foolish if you were sitting there and you were trying to pound a nail with a wrench. And then then when someone came along, your parent or someone else, said, hey, I see what you're doing with the wrench there. Um, It's working a little bit, but I think that a hammer might be more suitable to the task. Right? It would be a wise thing for you to do, so you're absolutely right to take the hammer and to, to use the hammer to pound the nail instead of the wrench. It would be a really foolish thing for you to get angry that someone tried to tip you off to the value of a hammer. And yet, this is how not just children, but so many of us respond when, when we're corrected. That's foolishness. We ought not be angry in the face of correction, but grateful. Proverbs 1.7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Proverbs 12.1 Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. But one who hates correction is stupid. Children, 
This should be a rule in my house too. Don't be stupid. Parents, church members, when you're corrected, don't be stupid. Love, discipline, and knowledge. Accept correction. So you have corrective discipline, and then on the flip side, you also have formative discipline. This is really, we can take the whole thing together and just say it's discipleship. It just means helping others to follow Jesus. We want to discipline and raise our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so we've laid out kind of general precepts about how to do that, how to shepherd them towards Jesus. But let me, allow me to offer four foundational suggestions that help with the formation of a child. First, corporate worship. Make corporate worship a priority for your family. We talked a lot about this last week, and so I'll be brief this week. But corporate worship will help to train your children in the language of worship. It will help to teach them how they are to relate to other Christians and how they are to relate to God. It will help them to learn the priority of gathering together with God's people each and every week in obedience to God's Word because Jesus is King and Jesus is worthy of our devotion. And Therefore, we come each week to give Him glory and honor and praise, to hear His Word proclaimed, and to continue to seek His face. It is an excellent practice not just for young families, but for all of us, to make the Lord's Day the biggest event of our week every week. Make it a special day. We get excited about. I mean, in my house, there are two, two big days each week in the fall. Usually it's just one big day and it's the Lord's Day, but, but in the fall, there's, of course, college football. And so, uh, when WU plays, even when they're bad like this year, on, on Saturdays, we wake up and it is game day, right? And everybody gets their game day clothes on. Chelsea makes pancakes. She gets the little flying dub V out. And, you know, I don't know how she does, but she makes it so that it shows up on the pancake. And we, we are ready for a college football Saturday. It's a good, it's a special day. But likewise, we make, try to make the Lord's Day a very special day. We get up in the morning and we don't put on our game day clothes, we put on our, our church clothes. Uh, for Elliot, for some reason, thinks that means flannel for me. You know, he, he got a pair of pajamas the other day that were flannel. He's like, got, I got church clothes pajamas, Dad. I don't know if that's a great precedent or not. But, but we put on our church clothes and we get excited about coming to worship with everyone. There's no chores that day. It's a day of rest. We're, we're going to spend time together with other believers and with one another. It's a special day. Make corporate worship a centerpiece of your life as a family. Corporate worship, of course, is required of us as Christians. And so that one is more of a you ought to, you must, whereas these next three are just suggestions. So here's the second foundation for formation. Catechism. Catechism is simply a word that we use to talk about how we teach the fundamentals of the faith. And you see catechism in corporate worship every week. We've worked through uh, the 1689 uh, Second London Confession. We've worked through the New City Catechism once. We're working through it again. We've also used the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, If you have really young children, you could also use it. There's one called the Catechism for Young Boys and Girls. I have links to these in my manuscript. But one of the reasons we're doing this is to rehearse and relearn some of the foundational truths of our faith. It's a really effective tool. And it's a really effective tool for you parents. You can actually, if you don't do family worship in your house during the week or family devotions, let me encourage you to do it. And and I'm going to give you all the resources you need right now. So just say, even if it's just you and your wife and you're older, this is a good habit. So just say, we're going to start small. We're not going to do every every night, but just say we're going to pick one night, a Monday night or a Tuesday night, we're going to take 10 to 20 minutes and we're going to have family worship together. And this is what we're going to do. I'm going to build it out for you, right? So you just take whatever question we're on. So we did question 47 this week, New City Catechism. So, so next week, this week, if you were to do this, 
He said, all right, we're going to do question 48, New City Catechism. What is the church? We have the question there. We have the answer there. We have a couple Scripture references. So you read the question and the answer together as a family. You try to learn it. Try to memorize it. You read those passages out of the Bible. Maybe you write down some questions you have. Have a little bit of discussion. Then, then you pray about all the ordinary things in your life, the ordinary things you're doing. Hey, Lord, help us to sleep well tonight. Hey, I have a test in the morning tomorrow. Help us to love one another well. You pray, and then you sing. You sing. We're, we're actually going to start putting out a, a hymn of the month each month for us to practice and learn together as a congregation. And we'll sing it each Sunday. Uh, this month, we're going to start midway through. I think the hymn's going to be, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. But the idea is that you can sit down, you can take all these pieces, put them together, and you can have family worship on a, on a Tuesday night for 20 minutes, and it will change your household. It will communicate to your children that not only are we Christians when we gather together with the body of believers on Sunday morning to worship the Lord Jesus, but we worship Him each and every day of our lives. And we gather together as a family to worship Him together at least one other night a week. We're communicating to our kids that Christianity is not just something that we do, it's a people that we are. We are Christ's, and He is in us all the time. So make use of catechism. Thirdly, build community with the church. Build relationships with other church members. Especially if you have young children, it's important to pursue inter- generational relationships. Research shows that the most impactful thing in whether or not a child will walk with the Lord their whole lives, uh, number one, their relationship with their parents, that their parents are, are teaching them these things regularly throughout the week, that it's not just on Sunday. And number two, they have relationships with Christians who are older than them who are not their parents. Build these relationships. Use the church. Allow the church to help teach your children what God is like. Yes, you are the primary teacher of your children, but you are not the only teacher of your children. Lastly, we've, we've hit on this already, make Christ the center of your marriage and of your home. So, mothers and fathers, one of the best ways you can teach your kid the Gospel is by loving one another really, really good. Remember, we just talked about how the, the gospel is portrayed in the way that a husband loves and sacrifices for his wife and the way a wife loves and submits herself to her husband. The, the gospel is played out in your marriage and the marriage is the centerpiece of your house. It is from your marriage that children have, have come. Right? Behold, children! What Doug Wilson says here, he says that there is a sexual relationship at the center of the home should be obvious to all who live there hugs, kisses, and romantic attention. If the children know that there is a fundamental unity between husband and wife, they can easily understand the spiritual analogy of Christ and His people. Love one another well, husbands and wives. Commit to making Jesus the center of your marriage and the center of your home. Pray in the ordinary. Pray about lots of things. I mean... I shared this with Jane the other day, but it was a, I don't know what it was. But Chelsea, we have one set of keys to our van. And Chelsea came home, uh, ran in the house after the store, she started cooking. And then uh, she was taking a meal to somebody. And she got everything in the car to go away. And she got in the van and no keys. Couldn't find the keys. And so all of us, I mean all of us, are looking for these keys. We're like, the van is here, so the keys have to be here. We are looking for keys for, for close to two hours. Just, I mean, looking absolutely everywhere, can't find them. And, you know, me, I'm, I'm praying, Lord, show us where the keys are. Show us where the keys are. And, of course, they were in the most ridiculous place. She had set a pineapple on the counter, and the keys are hanging in the top part of the pineapple, as if she did it on purpose. I don't... It was infuriating, really. I, <laughs> but I, my point here is to say, we prayed about it. Pray about things in the ordinary warp and woof of your life. Christ is there and He hears. Make spiritual life part of the atmosphere of your home. Teach your children to follow Jesus all the time. I think maybe the best counsel on all of this is 
from one of my professors back in seminary, uh, Dr. Aiken used to say, have fun and talk about Jesus a lot. And if you're a parent, I think that's the, the most practical wisdom I can give you this morning. Have fun and talk about Jesus a lot. Commit yourself to it. Friends, pray for wisdom as you raise your children. Pray for the conversion of your children. Pray for strength. Pray that you would be dazzled by the Gospel. Pray that you would be enchanted by grace. Pray that you would be devoted to the King and that they would see your love for God and recognize that they want to love God too. Lead them to the One who is going to teach them everything. The One who can give them eternal life. Teach them to love the Lord their God with all their hearts, souls, mind, and strength. Just as you do. Pray that you might be able to be obedient to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. That you wouldn't provoke your children to anger. And that you would bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Do these things and you might just find that unlike so many children in the world, your children might not mind becoming their parents. In fact, they might strive for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your wisdom, for Your Word. Thank You that even though we are unlovely, You love us still. When we fail to love, You love, love, love. You come to us in our weakness and in our sickness. and You bind up our wounds and You make us well. We thank You that You love weak and weary sinners like us. We thank You that You have made us right with Yourself, not because of anything that is in us, but because of all that is in Christ. Lord, we pray that You would help us to leave this place this morning filled with Your Spirit, committed to loving one another, building up Your church in love, building up our families in love, we recognize that perhaps the most important field of evangelism for any church begins in our homes. So we pray that we would teach our families about Jesus and that our evangelism wouldn't stop there. That we would also teach our friends and those in our community about you and about the gospel. Lord, thank you so much for loving us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
appropriate after a message on parenting, I think. Would you join me in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Do you join me in the benediction? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Amen. We'll see you next week.